Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I have with me Lori Lee Emshi. She is a serial expat from New Zealand, currently living in Houston, which is her 17th expat assignment, which just blows my mind having only done one <laughs> in my life. And in our emails back and forth over the years, you've mentioned to me that you have lived in on every continent twice, except for Antarctica. But I remember from our bucket list show that Antarctica, visiting Antarctica is one of your goals. So you'll get there. You might not live there, but you'll get, get there. there. Yeah. And, and you started all this moving around with your parents. How old were you when that happened? Um, so I took my first international flight when I was six weeks old. Wow. Where to, do you know? Yeah, my mom and dad were actually working and living in Chile and Punta Arenas. And when my mom got pregnant, she decided she wanted to have me in New Zealand, which is where she was born. So she flew home with my dad. I was born. It took six weeks for me to get a passport. And then we were back on a plane back to Chile. Wow. Wow. So what were your parents doing that was keeping them moving so much? My dad started out as an operator on oil and gas facilities. And then um, he doesn't do that anymore. But we, we were working in the oil and gas industry. Just the type of job he had sort of necessitated that we move every 18 to 24 months, which was about our average time in, in any given place. So for your entire life, You've moved every 18 to 24 months. Except for when I did my undergrad, yeah. Wow. I mean, obviously, that's the only life you know. Mm -hmm. But what is it like for a kid to move so frequently? Before the teen years started, it was really awesome. Whenever you got to a new place, there was kind of a period of you're the new kid and you have to make new friends and get used to a new country or city or whatever. But um, like my brother and I loved it we were always talking about like, where are we going next? Like as soon as we kind of got used to a place, it was like, so, you know, what's the next one going to be? And You know, where could we go? We'd always play this game at Christmas and we still play it. And it's, you know, okay, we're sitting somewhere. Where will we be next Christmas? Wow. We've never been right. Not once. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is so interesting that for you, every single year you would be somewhere different. Do certain places stand out then as being somewhere where you had more fun, less fun, or are they all just sort of standalone, unique chapters? They're all pretty much standalone chapters. I think you guys talked about this in an episode before about how like each place you kind of get a chance to start over new. And, you know, each one has things that you like and you didn't like, but the places that shine brighter than others had not so much to do with the place, but the people that were there. If you were there with a really great group of co-workers or friends or just you know even if you made friends with locals those are the ones that are like yeah that was an awesome assignment that was a great place it didn't actually have that much to do with the geographical location but are there certain places that culturally maybe feel more right to you like you are more comfortable right now you're in houston texas for instance yeah does houston feel good to you as a person of the world does it fit you well, so like Houston to me is, it's a very livable place. There are some places where it's a struggle just to like, you know, get to the grocery store or go to work. But here, obviously, it's, it's the US. It's very livable. There's everything that you could ever want or need you can get. But someone actually asked me yesterday, they were like, do you feel more 
American or more Australian. I think all up, I've spent like eight years in Australia and I was like, I feel more Australian. I think if anything, I probably feel Canadian the most because that's where I went to boarding school and I did my undergrad there. When I go back to Calgary in Alberta, like it's where my parents are right now anyway, that feels a little bit more normal, but that's not saying that much (laughs) really. It was really bizarre. I was in Singapore uh, maybe two or three years ago. And Singapore is like an, it's an expat city. There's tons of expats there. And I felt oddly at home there (laughs) as well, even though I wasn't there for very long, I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is kind of normal. Not really, but like, you know, it, it felt that like that a little bit. Yeah. It's so hard for me to even imagine what it would be like to move as much as you have. For instance, I had a move when I was a kid from Minnesota to Seattle. That was, for whatever reason for me, particularly traumatizing. Like Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to adjust from that living experience in Minnesota to the living experience that was going on here. Mm -hmm. And I think ever since then, I got hesitant to make bold moves. For you though, in moving so much of the time, is that just not even an issue for you? Or do you have those moves that are more traumatic? There are definitely moves that are more traumatic than others. And some of it comes down to like how much support you're getting during a move. Like if you're moving with a company, they kind of take care of a lot of things. They'll help you move all of your stuff or put your things in storage and get you, you know, your plane tickets, get you housing when you arrive. But when you're doing it all on your own, it ups the trauma factor significantly. Probably one of the hardest moves I ever did wasn't even that exotic. It was from Toronto to New York. I have never been so stressed out in my life. And it wasn't, it was a tiny little jump, you know, it wasn't even a huge culture shift, but it took me a long time to um, get over it basically and start living life in New York because it was stressful and expensive and it was just me. I didn't have anyone helping me. Yeah, it, it really depends it's more stressful based on like what it is that you need to accomplish versus leaving people behind. Yeah. I mean, at this point you would have left so many people behind in your life, friends coming and going. Yeah. And that, that never really gets easier, but I think you come up with, you do get better at coming up with ways of coping with it. You don't ever want to be in a situation where you're like, I left all my friends and family and it was fine. Like (laughs) you're uh, on your way to being a psychopath then. But um, (laughs) I think when you've done it enough times, you get kind of familiar with the stages of grief, for lack of a better word, of leaving things behind. And then what you have to do when you get to a new place to kind of set yourself up so you're not constantly reminded, oh, here's all the people and the fun things and the memories I left behind. You know, you come up with ways to start, you know, forming new rituals and Facebook and everything like that has been great for keeping in contact with people. You don't feel as much cut off now compared to when I started doing this, but it doesn't really get easier with subsequent moves. You just get better at at coming up with ways to deal with it, I think. Yeah, you mentioned rituals. Do you have certain rituals that you you return to over and over again, or is it are you referring more to trying to figure out the rituals that you will follow within whatever city you go to? Probably more the rituals you'll follow in your new city. 
and I'm really bad for this where like when I get somewhere, I figure out like, this is my coffee shop. This is the place I go to for dinner on Fridays. This is my bookstore. And I kind of, once I set it up, I don't really leave. And it drives some of my friends crazy because they're like, we've been to this restaurant 27 (laughs) times, pick somewhere new. And I'm like, no, it's just everything else in my life changes. This is a constant. Now that like I'm in the US, it's been a bit more of a balance. Like, okay, maybe just Fridays, we just go out for dinner somewhere instead of going to this one place. Yeah. (laughs) And it sounds really, I don't know, maybe silly, but those things do help when you're trying to transition from wherever you were before to a new city. It, for whatever reason, does. You have some some structure in an otherwise completely blank yeah. uh, life canvas. Yeah. You would have to go through this sadness, these, this grief of leaving people behind and, and then making new friends and putting yourself out there and starting anew. But yet, I, I'm not going to call you an addict, but... <laughs> You even said to me once that, you know, you just get to this point where enough time has gone by, 12 months, and you start looking for the next place that you're going to go. So how do those two go together? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a mystery, but it it's kind of one of those things like once I feel like I've not mastered a place, but like I've, I can live there comfortably and it's not a challenge anymore and like you can go to the grocery store without having to think about it too much. You've seen all the sites, you're comfortable traveling. You're like, okay, well, what's next? What's over the horizon? And if your parameters are such that you've done all the things you want to do in that city or in that place, it's like, okay, well, what other places are there? And it's also a little bit tied to the nature of my job. My job is also one that lasts from 18 months to three years. So you have that in your head as well. Like, I'm only going to be here for a set amount of time, I should do all the things I want to do. So that the move isn't so bad when it comes, you're like, okay, well, what's next? What should I be looking for in the future? So you're a little bit prepared for it when it happens. Yeah. Are you always traveling alone? Or are you taking people with you when you go? When I was a kid, my whole family moved. Now it's just been me. But I think if we made any moves going forward, like I would want to move with my boyfriend or husband or, you know, whatever your marital status is, I wouldn't want to keep doing it alone. But so far, it's just been me. When you think about life, do you feel like you're mainly operating alone? Is it a small friend group? I don't know how you would make a a large friend group in a 12 month period of time. But that could be my own issue. Yeah, I mean, I think just my personality, I was never someone to have a giant group of friends. It's always just been like a pretty close knit group. Are most of your friends people who are also moving around as much as you? Yeah. Like in Houston, my friend group is like 100% expats. And some of them are Americans, like they're former expats, but it's people who understand the moving around. (laughs) Do you understand the people who like when you encounter people who have lived in Houston, say their whole lives, and they're not going to go anywhere else? What do you make of people like that? Well, we actually do have a few people like that that come, that end up coming into our friend group as, you know, like girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever. And I mean, if people are happy and that's fine, I, to me, it like boggles my mind a bit that that they're happy with that. And like I, my family comes from a really small town in southern Alberta and I went to school there for a while and it was filled with people who were completely content with staying in that small town because to them it was the best place in the world and why would you ever leave? And I'm like, that's cool, but 
what if it isn't? And they're like, oh, no, it is. So you're kind of an oddity to them and they're an oddity to me, but you seem to get along all right. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, people who want to be doing what you're doing, but haven't been able to figure out how, how you're making a living moving so much. Yeah, most of my traveling is not self-funded because I would probably be in a lot of debt if it was. <laughs> right. It's just the nature of my job. When I signed on to do it, that was a requirement that you have to be willing to travel. And I mean, I picked that job, gravitated towards it because of that factor. The beginning of 2016, I moved to LA and then I came back to Houston nine months later. Like that was all for work. You know, they said, who wants to take this assignment? It's in Los Angeles. We don't know how long it's going to go for. I put my hand up and then I was on a plane. It's very much the nature of the job and the industry. And what's the industry? Uh, energy in Texas. You can probably guess what sector. It's oil and gas. But I've worked on some power projects too. Um, I actually co-founded a wind energy company with my dad who patented a new type of wind turbine. People find that really strange. They're like, you work in oil and gas, but you also work in renewables. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> it all relates together in the big picture. Anyone who works in the oil and gas industry, they're going to be asked to move. Why is that? It's wherever projects seem to kind of come up in clusters. Like a couple of years ago, there was lots and lots of oil and gas work happening in Australia. So there was you know, lots of jobs down there and lots of companies sending their people down there to work people that had the experience and the expertise, like they needed them down there. Now the work has kind of gravitated back to the United States. There's lots, lots of projects going on here. So most of the people come back and um, it seems to cycle like every 10 years, you know, we were in the Middle East around 2005 to 2006. It was, there was heaps of work going on there. So that's where we were sent. And 10 years before that, we were also in the Middle East. So it seems to kind of just go in these cycles and you you move around following the work. Hmm, that's so interesting. I do want to ask you, um, one of the wonderful things that you mentioned in one of the emails that you wrote was that people can learn from you all these mistakes that newbie expats often make when they're moving for the very first time that make their lives more difficult than they would need to be if they had not done these things. And I thought it'd be great to have you give us some advice. <laughs> there are so many people who listen who are just basically getting up the courage and or planning their very first experience living in another country. So since you know so well, what are some of the things that mistakes you've made or that your friends have made that are easily preventable? Sure. So I actually have, I have some of my top tips, I guess, and then I got my friends to my expat friends to write in some tips as well. So we'll see if we can get to some of those. But yeah, it's really um, upsetting when you see like a new expat or like an expat family on their first assignment and they're making mistakes and it's making like life difficult for them and then they don't want to do it again. And that's like the one of the worst things to watch happen because it doesn't have to be that difficult. And I've seen it happen before where people will take an expat assignment, and then they'll get there and have a miserable time and then not want to do it again. And you're like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can keep traveling. One of the first ones that comes to mind is um, cell phones. People get like really attached to um, their cell phone number. And when they move, they don't want to give it up and get a new one. And I saw this happen like a couple months ago. 
a family from Australia moved to the U.S., wanted to keep their number so that their friends could keep calling them and they could keep using it. And they ended up with an $800 phone bill one month. If you absolutely must keep your cell phone number, get the like minimum plan to like keep it active and then leave it in a drawer and just never use it until you come home or just bite the bullet when you get to a new place, rip out the SIM card, throw it away or whatever and get a local SIM. And um, now there's like all these cool things. Like if you get a Google Pixel phone, it's on Project Fi so you can use it anywhere in the world. And I think like T-Mobile does a T-Mobile One plan so you can use it anywhere in the world and not get hit with a ginormous bill. But it's just so bad. Like you're trying to set up your life which is expensive when you first get somewhere and then you get slammed with this ridiculous phone bill. So that's definitely one of them. I think a lot of people are trying to hold on to that cell phone number because they feel like nobody will ever be able to find me again or like the far flung contacts that you don't, you're not on Facebook and stuff with won't be able to find me anymore. Do you have any advice about that? About, I don't know, even just letting that fear go? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like I've done it. I have absolutely kept cell phone numbers because I'm like, no, everyone in Canada won't be able to contact me if I get rid of it. Then I you know, don't use it for three years and then forget I have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if people need to contact you, even if you move away, like they will find a way. If contacting you is that important and they don't have Facebook or refuse to use email or whatever, they will find a way to get a hold of you if you get a new number. It just in the big picture, the cell phone number does not matter. Like I've I've had plenty of them and I've never once looked back and been like, oh, damn it. If I had just kept my cell phone number from 15 years ago, that person would have been able to contact me and I don't know, invite me to their wedding or whatever. That has never happened <laughs> out of all the numbers I've had. Not that you know of. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I don't have a control for that. So it may have happened. <laughs> so what else besides that? So the other thing, and this advice was actually given to me before I went to boarding school by a friend who had gone before me. And they said, understand that when you move to a new place, the first two weeks are the worst. If you're going to have a bad time, it's going to be in that first two weeks and then it starts getting better. So you need to push through that first fortnight to give your the new place a chance. And then it's really three months before you get settled before like you can go drive yourself to work or go to the grocery store or go out for dinner without really having to think about it. And those first three months, it takes like a lot of mental energy because you're doing it all for the first time. Just knowing that, that like it doesn't happen overnight. You don't just show up and then you're like, oh, and now I can live here. It takes some time. And I've seen people give up they'll be there for a month and they'll be like, it's just not working. I'm going home. And I'm like, no, just wait a bit longer. Like it just takes some time. And I'm sure some, for some people it'll take longer than three months, but it does happen. I do remember that too from Rome. That first month I was thinking, what in the world am I doing here? Just as an aside in living in so many different places, how do you deal with the language barrier, which is so daunting to so many people? I've never really lived anywhere long enough to pick up a language fluently, but learning a couple of key phrases before you get there so you don't feel completely helpless usually helps. But I don't know, you just don't be too hard on yourself and you learn enough to get by. And a lot of the places we've lived, even if the language isn't English, just because, um, you know, you're usually there for business and English is the language used in business. You can 
usually learn enough that you can get through um, your day. And a lot of the time I've been in school. So I went to a lot of international schools where they do teach and speak in English. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things you get used to not being embarrassed. No one's going to come up to you and make fun of you for trying to speak the local language or trying to make an effort. Actually, the one time I was trying to speak Spanish and someone kind of like refused to go along with it, you know, in my like broken Spanish was in the Canary Islands. We were there on vacation because the Spanish, the very limited Spanish I can speak is the type that they speak in Chile and South America. It was different to whatever the dialect was that they speak in the Canary Islands. And I was trying to like order food or something. And the guy just would not. He's like, I can't understand you, whatever horrible language you're speaking. And I'm like, oh, come on, buddy. You can, you can figure it out. Help me. <laughs> Just give me my sangria so I can get out of here. <laughs> and that wasn't even like I wasn't living there. That was a vacation place. But um, yeah, just not being afraid to kind of sound silly or make some mistakes. People are generally pretty forgiving when you're trying to learn their language. Right. Yeah, definitely. So what other tips do you have? Oh, this is one. My friend Sophia Lazaro actually said to me the other day, she said, if you're an American, to learn metric before you go overseas, mm. which I thought was a really good practical tip because I've, I've heard stories about people ordering like a kilo of strawberries or getting a liter of milk and that's not what they wanted, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. How long it takes you to be able to know how hot it is outside. This next one um, this is a really tough one to not do, but when you get to a new place, you know, kind of excessively comparing it to your home or to the old place. And it's tough because this is normal. Like when you go somewhere new, your brain is trying to process all this new stuff. And the best way to do that is to compare it to something that you already know or pointing it out when it's different. Like, oh, well, this isn't how they do it in Australia. This isn't how they do it in Japan and people are like, well, no kidding, you're not there. And the reason people do it, well, like in my experience anyway, is because they're comparing it to home and to them, home is perfect. You've kind of eulogized it because you're not there anymore and everything back there is easy and everything happens seamlessly. And then you're in this new place where like everything seems to go wrong and it's so easy to do. My mom actually used to say this to me a lot that like nowhere is perfect. We've lived all over the place. We have never found anywhere that is the perfect place to live. There's always something. Every place has its flaw. So while you're there, concentrate on the good things that you like. And then just understand that, yeah, there's going to be some things that just, you know, do not go over well with you. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) One of the other things I see this happen a lot too. and, And as soon as people do it, they're like, oh, yeah, that was not necessary. But when you first move, you have to remember, like when you're packing and getting ready, You have to remember that where you're going, it's not like going on vacation where you need to bring like shampoo and toothpaste and enough clothes to last you, you know, however long you're gone. Like when you're moving for an expat move, you're going somewhere where people live. So you can buy shampoo when you get there. You can buy toothpaste and clothes and whatnot. So not bulking up your suitcase, your your luggage with things that aren't really necessary. In that same vein, the stuff that you are going to bring bring things that you take comfort in that you can't buy somewhere new. And for some people, that's like books or movies or, um, I don't know, art or duvet cover or something like that. 
when I was in Australia, the American expats used to bring back like spices and seasoning and sauce because they found Australian food so bland. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to like recommend that people bring that stuff because you have to consider customs and all of that. But it was just, I don't know, it made, made, you know, life a little bit easier to have some shakari's seasoning or (laughs) shiracha. Shiracha was huge because you couldn't get that there. Yeah. Is there anything that you always take? Books and photos. Those are both things that now a lot of books are ebooks and photos are digital, but I there are some that I will always bring in hard copy of. I think that the photos are definitely something left over from when I was in boarding school because they would always tell you to bring lots of photos of your family and friends to put up on the wall and I still kind of kept doing that. Yeah, I think that helps make whatever space you're in yours for the time you're there it doesn't have to be your forever home but it's it helps make it your home for for that amount of time yeah oh this was another one i know i'm not sure what the skew of male to female listeners is on this show but i'm going to assume it's split but this was one that my friend Brittany brink was very passionate about and that is to warn the world about tampons it is very difficult to find tampons with applicators outside of north america or in general, like when I was living in the Middle East, it was just difficult to find them. And you can't ask someone, you can't go up to a male clerk and be like, hey, do you know where these are? Because they will run away from you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of her tips was if, if that is a, um, a comfort thing, necessity for you, and you're going overseas, maybe throw a box of those in your suitcase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. It wasn't even something I ever thought of because I just have dealt with it. Like you just, you know, roll with whatever, <laughs> whatever's available. <laughs> but apparently for Americans in Australia, that was like a big thing. They're like, you cannot get normal quote yeah, unquote tampons yeah. there. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. It's definitely not something that you would think of, but it is so true. That's a really good point. I was surprised at that one. But oh, and this is another more practical one as well. To check the banking requirements before you leave. Usually when I've moved or my family has moved and we get to a new country and we need to set up a bank account, the company will help you do that. If there's visa requirements for having a bank account or paperwork or whatever, they'll help you do that. But if you are moving on your own, you don't actually have the right to open a bank account in any given country. And I've seen that happen to people before where they're like, I don't know, I just can't have a bank account here. I have to deal with it. Can't use local currency. And it can be one of those things that like, you know, it's pretty vital to day to day life. So definitely if you're moving on your own or even if you're moving with a company, like check what you need to have a bank account there and how to move money from home to where you're living to kind of save stress and (laughs) headaches. Do you maintain a bank account in any particular country? I have one in Canada and I have one, obviously I have one in the US. I'll probably keep those two open forever. And then I have one in Australia still. I left that open after I left because the taxes and you get a couple of like payments and everything after you leave. So I left it open just so I'd have, they didn't have to like mail a check to wherever the hell I was after. Yeah, right, right. But there are like, even when you're trying to close out a bank account or if you're not in the country anymore, there's all sorts of like red tape and paperwork. And I think in the Middle East, Qatar and the UAE, like when you leave, when you're 
visa expires, the bank closes your account or something like that. It's each country has its own set of rules and it really pays to make sure you know what they are. Cause it's one of those nitty gritty things. You're like, Oh, I'm out of here. I'm gone. A lot of bureaucracy, then that's often what scares people away the most is not knowing how to, and myself included, by the way, <laughs> not knowing how to, how to deal with, uh, how to deal with things like that. You yeah. Know. Did you have any problems opening an account in Rome or did you manage to get by with that? Uh, I couldn't. I was actually there illegally. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I mean, no, what we just did was every time we used an ATM, we would just get out the maximum amount of money we could get out. Yeah. So that you're just trying to minimize as much of the fees as possible. The maximum that you could take out would change based on whatever the currency rate was in juxtaposition to the dollar. So that was a little bit of a head scratcher at times, but that's how we did it. I mean, we also knew that we were only going to be there for uh, at most a year. And so we just decided to do it that way just because we weren't in the laying groundwork sense. But see, now you're only in a place for a year and you'll you'll still do it. So it makes it makes sense to try to avoid those fees if you can. But I, we didn't even try to sort that out. Moving from country to country, is there a certain way that you transfer the money? There's PayPal, there's Square Cash, there's all sorts of different programs like that that people use to sh shuttle money back and forth. Is there anything that you use in that regard? I haven't. I usually just get the bank to do it because I'm like, I guess, old and stodgy that way. <laughs> but my friends are definitely more on the up and up with that. I know um, TransferWise is really popular because you can go between currencies. People have used PayPal, you know, without too many problems. And then there was an another one. Um, it was another exchange, currency exchange one. I think it's like ex.com or something like that. It, but it's similar to TransferWise to move money around. And the only um, downside to using one of those versus using the bank is like the bank can track it a little bit more closely than some of the online ones where you kind of send it off into the ether and in a couple of days it appears on the other side which you know I mean the transfer is insured and everything so it, it makes it there but I know like with with the bank I can call them and be like hey where's my money where is it right now yeah I think if I was going to recommend one I would say transfer wise if you don't want to use your bank, they have a little bit better rates. We should almost do like an entire thing just about the money aspects of things, because that is one of the things that freaks people out the most. Yeah, the, the money is, is a big deal. And it's a lot easier now than what it used to be. The Internet and how connected banks are and people, it's a lot easier now, thankfully. Um, now the, the last one, I mean, I could probably... There's like pages of them, but <laughs> um, kind of the last one, and this was a little bit less of a practical tip, I guess, but it was um, my friend Kate sent this one in and she said, when you get to a place, make sure you take advantage of where you are. A lot of people like after they get through that three months and they're like, okay, I'm here now and I know how to do all the things, they kind of go on cruise control and forget to keep exploring and to keep trying new things because it's so easy and like I'm guilty of this because I get somewhere and I'm like okay I'm just gonna be a lump on my couch now because I'm here and that's it well and you got your rituals you have to go to that same diner every Friday night exactly I'm like <laughs> but you have to keep you know taking advantage of where you are and traveling in that region or um trying new things going to all the restaurants and when I was in 
Australia this last time. I went out to the Great Barrier Reef a couple times because I didn't get to do it the first time I was there. And I probably went more than what I needed to, but I was like, I want to see it. A lot of people take trips to Thailand and Bali and the Philippines because it's right there. And it was on my list and I didn't do it. And looking back, I'm like, it's one weekend. Why didn't I do it? It's one of those things. It doesn't matter how many times you move. You have to keep reminding yourself to get out there and, and keep exploring. And even if you have like a list that you make at the beginning and work your way through it. We've had this actually, this one thing on our lists for a while, which was to swim with whale sharks. And there's a place in Australia where you can do it called Ningaloo Reef. And we were in Australia for like a year and a half. And, you know, like the migration came through two times while we were there and we never did it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> we, had, we had the opportunity. Why didn't we do it? So, you know, things like that. Yeah. I guess that my last question for you and then if people are jonesing for more tips, then you and I can set up another time and you can finish with all those pages. <laughs> but I think so much of what prevents people from traveling as much as you do or moving to new places as much as you do is fear. Are you personally afraid of anything at this point, having done this your whole life? Or is there anything that holds you back from doing certain things? No, not really. My first expat assignment on my own, I went to Australia. And, you know, that move, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't scary to me. Like I'd made the decision to go and it felt like, you know, I felt really good inside about doing it. And while I was there, I ended up traveling a lot by myself, like going on trips, solo travel. And I was a little bit scared then to travel because I wasn't going somewhere with a, for work where there's a support group. I was just going on vacation. And I kind of dealt with that by over planning the trip. So like I was going to be in Athens on my own for like three days and I'd never been to Greece before. I've never been to the Mediterranean before. So I had no idea. You can read about it. You can watch videos and stuff, but you don't really know till you're there. And I kind of dealt with that fear by just really planning the whole thing. Like I organized a car to pick me up from the airport because I didn't want to take the train because I didn't know what it was like. And then picked all the places I wanted to go for dinner. And like, this is maybe a little OCD, but I had printed out Google Maps of how to get to them from my hotel in case my cell phone failed. So I would always know where I was going and didn't look like a lost, scared tourist out on her own. I'd planned everything. And like, by the end, I was like, eh, I'm fine. I'm just gonna go, <laughs> gonna go walk through the placa by myself. It's fine. And I kind of do that with moves as well. I will plan everything so that I don't have to be scared because I always have a plan. And if it changes, that's fine. Plans change, but at least you have something where you know, these are the things I need to do. This is where I need to be. And for me, that really helps. Yeah, it's all about finding some sort of structure within every move that you do in a way. Yeah. And sometimes once you get to a place, it's fun to not have that to just be like, I'm just going to go out and go do some things today. But definitely in the beginning, when it's scary, I just plan, 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 and take all the, the fear and probably the potential fun out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, all right, we should leave it there. But um, I will invite people if they'd like to, if you're willing, if they have more questions for you being the person we've interviewed who's moved the most <laughs> and for the majority of your life, if you're willing, I would like to invite people to ask questions if they have them, because since you have so much experience adjusting to new places, 
And they might even have particular questions about places you've lived and what it was like to be there. Living in the Middle East or living in South America or where, I don't know everywhere you've been. We should get into that sometime too. But do you want to answer any follow-up questions if people have them? Yeah, of course. I'd love to. All right, great. So email us at bittersweetlife at mail.com, M-A-I-L.com. And thank you so much, Lori Lee Mshi. Oh, before we leave, Lori Lee Mshi, tell us what your last name means and how it came about. Oh, the story of my last name. So my great-grandfather emigrated to Canada from Lebanon in the late 1800s, and he came through Ellis Island, and he didn't speak any English, and they asked him for his name, and he told them in Arabic to get lost. And that's what they wrote down. So that's what Mshi means. You hear it in movies sometimes if they're in Egypt, Mshi, just go away. <laughs> I love that. And he just decided, or your family just decided to carry it forward. I, I don't know how much of a choice it was. It was written on all of his immigration documents. So I think he was stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And we'll have to do it again sometime. And yeah, thanks for having me. And this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.